Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio. If you like what I do, please consider subscribing to my Substack, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you can offer a one-time or recurring gift by way of my PayPal account, which is the same as my email, truthjihad at gmail.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad radio broadcast. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from the studio, which is the rooftop studio, such as it is, here in Saidia, Morocco. I try to bring on the best voices of truth, and occasionally somebody to argue with. Tonight, um, I'm really happy to have uh, a fantastic uh, pair of great spiritual voices out of the American wilderness. Uh, two of my favorite people um, and favorite American Muslims. Uh, Kabir Helminski was just on in the first hour for the first time. He's He's been a kind of a, a low-key uh, supporter of the Truth Jihad for, well, at least like almost two decades now, I think. But it was great to finally get to talk with him on the show. And now John Andrew Morrow comes on. He, uh, like Kabir Hominski, is somehow uh, operating out of the, I guess, the lower Midwest. I, I was in the upper Midwest in Wisconsin. Those guys are in, like, Indiana and Kentucky. Uh, at one point, I was actually thinking of moving to that area just so I could hang out with, with them and then with Charles Upton, who was on last night. So there's still a, still a few uh, honest men in America, uh, honest Muslim men in this case, and uh, it's great to be able to check in with them at this time of, oh boy, what do we call it? International crisis, insanity, um, genocide in Gaza has uh, accelerated. It's it's off the charts now. The genocide of Palestine has been going on 75 years, and now the veil is off. We can all see what's going on, and the International Court of Justice just ruled that Israel needs to curtail its genocide and report back in a month. Well, uh, oh boy. Anyway, uh, we're going to get into that conversation and then also talk about John Andrew Morrow's new book, Islam and Slavery. And that conversation will touch on some of the same issues that I raised with Kabir Helminski about Islamic scripture and its application to all times and places. So let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, welcome, John Andrew Morrow. Hey, it's good to have you back. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. It's always a great pleasure and privilege to, to, to speak with you. We've spoken many times together uh, on the radio and also uh, in person at various conferences. So it, it's fantastic to reconnect with you. I feel this exactly the same way. I'm really in awe of your activist efforts with the Covenants Initiative. Uh, uh, publicizing the covenants of Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, with the Christians of the world and other religions, uh, which make it 100% clear and inarguable that Islam uh, requires Muslims to protect the other religions. And indeed, that's one of the reasons that Islam's custody, custody of the holy places in the Holy Land and in Jerusalem over the centuries uh, despite uh, a few cases where where it could have been better, was overall 
reasonably um, competent, let's say, at protecting the rights of other faiths, because unlike certain other religions who have a tendency to get into a sort of my way or the highway or chosenness or whatever, um, Islam has always uh, had uh, respect for other faiths, uh, which is kind of um, unusual, let's say, especially in, in, within monotheism. And so you brought that out beautifully with your Covenants Initiative work. So, you know, before we get into the Islam and Slavery book, John, What's your reaction to the International Court of Justice's ruling today on the ongoing genocide in Gaza? Um, well, obviously, I find the situation there absolutely sickening. Now, you know me. I'm a very emotional person, and when I get upset about something, I speak out, I lash out, I write. I just can't control myself. It becomes really obsessive. But what we are witnessing is so horrific that it has left me completely speechless. Now, I'm a volcano about to explode, but um, I I have been really shell-shocked at at the extent of these atrocities and uh, the lack of humanity. Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having a kind of a hard time. Uh, you know, restraining the tendency to, to, you know, want to say very, very harsh things that maybe it's better not to say in that the, you know, the negative energy reverberations of some of those harsh things, you know, could end up just contributing to the problem rather than solving it. But at the same time, it's, I mean, obviously the victims of this genocide have, this, this makes it absolutely clear that the Palestinian resistance, which has been um, fighting for against genocide for 75 years is absolutely right and has every right to fight. I mean, that part I don't think is even, you can't argue with it, but, uh, you know, it, it's also that it raises questions about, uh, about Jewish power, about the genocide story of the Holocaust that basically justified the founding of the genocidal Zionist entity in Palestine and all sorts of things like that. Um, and it's, it's, it's a time when I, I find myself, oh, almost sort of apologizing to some of my friends who I used to argue with. And, you know, they, I thought they were like too harsh on, uh, Jewish power when now, you know, <laughs> I don't know how, if it's possible to be too harsh about Jewish power when, when, you know, this, this pro-Zionist element of the most powerful Jews is totally dominating American uh, politics and forcing the United States to become pl- complicit in this ge- genocide, which means you know, those of us who are American taxpayers are complicit in this genocide, and we sh- we this is just not acceptable. So, what do oh, we do? Absolutely, and and people asking you know, Doctor Moore, why don't you say something? Why don't you speak out? What can I say? Their actions are louder than any uh, any of my words. The entire world has rallied against uh, Israel and has condemned them. Uh, with the exception of the United States. So there is a, a, a consensus in the world community that this is uh, disproportionate. It's absolutely unacceptable. There's a callous disregard for human life. And so, fine, dig your own grave. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> dig your own grave. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I brought on Kabir Helminski in the first hour, Partly because I feel I felt like I I need to hear his voice right now because you know he's basically on board with us on all of the issues of sort of you know what's really been going on over the past well, few decades or what have you um, but he's 
kind of, you know, working on a spiritual level, uh, trying to raise the, the spiritual vibrational level, uh, and raise consciousness, uh, as a way of dealing with this. So, and, and, you know, that leads to sort of avoiding lashing out, you know, when you see, uh, uh, you know, these, these horrific atrocities and then, you know, you watch the videos of the Hamas guys, coming out of tunnels and, you know, sprinting up to Israeli tanks and planting um, explosives on the tanks and, and fleeing uh, as the tank blows up, you know, it's pretty hard not to be cheering for that and then to experience a kind of an adrenaline rush that's not unlike what you feel like when you're cheering for your favorite football team, which in my case used to be the Green Bay Packers. Now it's the uh, Moroccan Atlas Lions. <laughs> uh, but, but it's, you know, is, is that you don't really want to be in that sort of, you know, adrenaline state, you know, I mean, even if you're on the battlefield, uh, you're supposed to, you know, if, if, if your opponent, you know, if you've just about, you're ready to kill him and then he spits on you, you can't kill him if you're angry at him. Right. <laughs> so, right. So, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's hard to master these. And also like we feel helpless, like, you know, what, what can, what am I doing to, uh, to save these people who were being genocidally slaughtered? It's, uh, Anyway, with, with this this ICJ ruling, it's maybe a nail in Israel's eventual coffin. But yeah. in the meantime, there are a lot of other people who are going to die. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, well, regarding regarding the issues that you raise in your book, Islam and slavery, we, we can sort of segue into those by pointing out that uh, the Islamic custody of the holy places in Jerusalem. Uh, if you, one compares it to the Christian custody when the Christians took over, uh, during the Crusades and basically massacred everybody in the city when they did so and, and what the Zionists are doing today, which isn't really that different. Uh, the, uh, the Islamic record is, is, is not even remotely that bad. I mean, it's Muslims for virtually the entire history of Jerusalem. Muslims have been protecting the rights of other faiths to, um, visit their holy places. Uh, so, and, and they're also custodians of those holy places and, and guardians and protectors, and they honor them. Right. So, so how did we get to this place where Americans have been brainwashed, and even some Muslims have been brainwashed into believing that Islam is some sort of you know egotistical identity politics thing, which insists on totally subjugating and converting everybody? You know, that's I, I keep seeing this. All of these. You know, lunatics, uh, even I think Charles Moskowitz, who I debated recently on the radio, was saying something like this, that, oh, all Muslims are required by their religion to conquer the entire world and convert everybody to Islam. And, you know, it, that's so it's utterly opposed to the truth that, but uh, somehow that image, I think, was promulgated by, by 9-11, of course, more than any, any other single incident. Uh, and, and you've been heroically working to point out that the, the opposite is the case. So maybe you talk a little bit about, about uh, the Islamic role in protecting other faiths with uh, relation to the Holy Land. Um, yes, well, that was uh, the focus of the covenants of the prophet uh, with the Christians of the world. It covers uh, all of that history. Um, yeah, and which is deeply rooted uh, in the Quran about protecting the, the the people of the book. Now there are some people who went astray and uh, 
for reasons of power and politics and so on. But by and large, uh, it was difficult to, um, to navigate away from these, uh, these covenants because they're, they're profoundly rooted in the Quran and they've also been transmitted through, uh, the Sunnah, through the Islamic sources and also uh, through the Christian sources as well, Jewish sources, uh, Samaritan sources. So there's some, uh, you know, it's a question of like uh, intersectionality. Uh, we have uh, independent attestations, all right? So it's one thing if we have something in the Islamic record, um, but it's not found in the Christian record or something that's in the Christian record and it's not in the Muslim record. But when you have this convergence of sources and they all agree upon the fact that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, clearly stipulated that uh, Jews and Christians and other uh, religious minorities had rights uh, and that uh, they should be protected, uh, well, that's fundamental and that's central and it's something that we should all remember. Uh, that's right. Well, in the first hour of the show, Kebir Helminski mentioned the Hamas Charter. He even read from part of the Hamas Charter. Uh, he, he had an article censored by the Huffington Post. They wouldn't, they refused to print it. Uh, this was mm-hmm. back during one of these earlier, you know, genocidal outbursts by the Zionists, the mowings of the lawn. I think it was maybe 2014. And he, uh, pointed out, uh, in, in that article that this nonsense in the media, uh, these false claims that the Hamas charter calls for, uh, exterminate, well, abolishing Israel and exterminating the Jews, killing all Jews on earth. Uh, this is, this claim has been made. And then, in fact, if you actually read the Hamas charter, it almost sounds like the covenants. That is, it, it mentions the duty to protect, uh, religious minorities, including, you know, Jews and Christians. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I guess today, as, you know, once again, the media is inventing these big lies against Hamas, uh, just as in the past, you know, we were, we were told that Hamas wants to kill every Jew on earth. Uh, today we're, we're told that they were beheading 40 babies and then cooking them in ovens and uh, raping women left and right. There's no evidence whatsoever of any of this. And in fact, these claims that Hamas was just mowing down unarmed civilians appear to be false. At least I, I followed up as, on as many of those as I could, and I couldn't find a single incident of video evidence that seemed to support or you know, unequivocally support any such activity by Hamas. And, and since the Hamas fighters on October 7th were filming everything they did with GoPro cameras and a great many hundreds of those Hamas fighters were killed and the Israeli authorities got those cameras and got the images that had Hamas indeed been out there deliberately mowing down civilians, uh, we would see plenty of evidence for it. And yet there's no evidence whatsoever for it. So my conclusion is that in fact, uh, the, to the extent that the civilians died, and it appears that maybe about half of these 1,200, not 1,400, uh, Israeli dead on, on October 7th were n- not uniformed police or military, but many of those, uh, that 600 so-called civilians, many of them were, were guards, uh, at kibbutzes and such, 
uh, and then many of the other people uh, were were fighting. They were, you know, they, all all these kibbutzes are full of armed people, and they're, all Israeli Jews are trained in arms and go through the military. So ultimately, what we have is this false claim that Hamas targeted civilians on October seventh, which they didn't. They targeted the Israeli military and they beat the Israeli military in stand-up battles, and then they did try to take hostages, including some civilian hostages. Uh, and then the Israeli military mowed down the uh, hostages as well as the hostage takers under their invocation of the Hannibal Doctrine. So what we end up with is, is a case where we have this big lie that's been used to support genocide. And that leads to this question of, you know, to what extent has this distortion of Islam become sort of so widely uh, believed in, in the West and I suppose even to some extent in the Islamic world, because of course there have been these you know, cases of ISIS or Daesh where they almost seem like parodies of, uh, of the worst possible uh, lies about Islam made up by the enemies of Islam. So how, how did these false conceptions of Islam lead to this ability to you know, invent ridiculous false uh, stories about uh, Hamas and, and other Islamic movements? I wouldn't even know where to begin, Kevin. I wouldn't even know where to begin. It began from the very beginning. Those who opposed the revelation, those who were threatened by these teachings of uh, of equality and justice, um, they had vested interest, and so they 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 fought the prophet openly, and um, yeah, they tried it. They tried to sub, subvert uh, his mission. And, and so, uh, and, and what about what about the kind of internal bad interpretations uh, with, uh, within Islam? Because that, that's your, your book, Islam and Slavery. It, it argues against those Islamic scholars who say that because slavery was ubiquitous, widely accepted, especially domestic slavery. We're not talking plantation slavery so much. We're talking about domestic slavery. Uh, that was ubiquitous in the so-called civilized world at the time, like all cities had mm -hmm. the people of cities when they reached a certain level of prosperity would always have slaves and a certain population, uh, percentage of the population would be slaves. Uh, so that was just taken for granted. And there's really very little evidence that, that anybody it, uh, in those times or even centuries from those times ever questioned the institution of slavery or had this idea that it could somehow ever be abolished. So, these Islamic scholars point to this ubiquity and presence of slavery at that time of a re Islamic revelation and the fact that, it, that you know, the, the prophet and his companions uh, did have slaves as everyone else did at the time and that the scriptures don't directly, you know, categorically ban slavery. And then they say, well, therefore, Islamic law permits slavery. So what, what's wrong with that argument? Oh, there's a, a, a great deal um, that is wrong. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, I'd like to read a little something. So a few years ago, a book um, titled "Slavery and Islam" was published, um, and as an academic. I'm asked to, to, to peer review articles that are submitted or to write reviews of books. 
And uh, the review of religion, well, reading religion, which is the name of the journal, reading religion, they sent me the list of books that were available for review, and I, I proposed a few of them, and th they came back to me and asked me to review slavery and Islam. And so I'd like to read th this short review. It's just a page and a half with you, and it's going to lead us into uh, the rest of our discussion. All right? Sounds good so, to me. In Slavery and Islam, Dr. Jonathan A.C. Brown, the Al-Walid bin Talal Chair of Islamic Civilization at Georgetown University, devotes over 400 pages to support his conviction that slavery and concubinage are permissible according to the Quran and the teachings and practice of the Prophet Muhammad. He is adamant that God and his messenger allowed condoned and supported them. In his words, the permissibility of slavery and concubinage is undeniable in the Quran. Rather than abolish sexual slavery, Brown asserts that Muslim jurists embraced the practice fully and took it to its maximum. He admits that the number of concubines taken by Muslims jumped dramatically with the early Islamic conquests. Brown also stresses that in Islamic law, consent for sexual relations was assumed or irrelevant. Not only does he argue that sex slaves played a central role in Arab and Ottoman slavery, but he goes as far as to trivialize the age of consent. Moreover, he argues that freedom is not a fundamental human right in Islamic law and treats serial polygamists who had hundreds of sex slaves as moral exemplars. Brown equates opposition to the institution of slavery and sexual servitude as opposition to the messenger of God. He considers those who oppose slavery but refuse to condemn the prophet to be hypocrites. When faced with dissenting views on the disputed subject of the legitimacy of slavery in Islam, Brown's strategy is to respond with a loaded trick question and a theological trap. Did the Prophet Muhammad commit a grave moral wrong? For Brown, a Muslim does not remain a Muslim if he or she answers in the affirmative. Consequently, he provides a jurisprudential justification for the practice of takfir, namely the excommunication of so-called heretics and apostates, and provides ample evidence that Muslims have a long history of enslaving other Muslims who do not share their ideology. Brown may claim to believe that slavery is wrong. However, he makes an important disclaimer. As a Muslim myself, I cannot condemn it as grossly intrinsically immoral across space and time. To do so would be to, commend the, to condemn the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad, and God's law as morally compromised. However, rather than support Islamic abolitionists, he assumes the role of the devil's advocate devoting an inordinate amount of time in his book to dismissing, debunking, and repudiating their arguments as violating the Quran, the Sunnah, and the Sharia. If one rejects the views of Muslim scholars who spurn slavery, is one an opponent or supporter of this evil and abominable institution? In fact, Brown wonders whether slavery is in the DNA of Islam. In his words, we can't pretend it's not a part of our religion. Brown's entire work is an ideological defense of slave master Islam. That it comes from a white American Muslim is even more abhorrent. 
This is the product of a conscious choice. His work is not simply a survey of historical opinions on the permissibility of enslavement, human bondage, sexual captivity, subjugation, and violation. It is a validation of those views. Alternative interpretations of Islam, which are abolitionist and emancipatory, are amply available. He is perfectly familiar with the arguments and evidence, namely that sexual relations are only permissible in wedlock and that the Prophet Muhammad stated that slave traders were the worst of human beings. Brown, however, has deliberately decided to denounce them. The fact remains that there is not a single verse in the Quran that commands slavery. The verses that touch upon the topic are descriptive. They deal with a temporal socioeconomic reality. Slavery is neither an article of faith, nor is it a religious obligation. In fact, the Quran encourages and even requires Muslims to emancipate enslaved people. As far as the exponents of Islam's spiritual, moral, ethical, and egalitarian tradition are concerned, the Quran, the Prophet in Islam, introduced a system that would reform the practice of slavery and abolish it entirely and forever. Rather than select the sharp and narrow path, Brown has selected the wide and shallow one of the classical Islamic status quo. And since he likes to confront critics with a question, this review ends with a question, not of my own, but one that God poses in the Quran. What will make you know what the steep path is? It is the freeing of the slave. So this is the short review that I wrote, okay, um, for reading religion. The uh, editor gets back to me and says, we cannot publish this review. And of course, I write articles, I publish articles, I'm very well published, I'm very well respected. And well, why? And she says, you're misrepresenting Brown's views. And I say, have you read the book? She says, no. But I googled him. Oh, wow, rigorous methodology. And, uh, you know, I found that he's, he, you know, that I have found a quote where he says that he thinks slavery is wrong. Okay. Uh, and so I'm misrepresenting his views. All right. Now, some of those comments he made, he made them in 2017, and this book came out in 2019 and 2020. So I'm going to go with the book. Had he changed his mind on this subject, surely it should have been reflected in this text. And so here we have a woman who is just so woke, okay? So so look, the, the, you know, you, you have one person who's saying that slavery is in the DNA of Islam, all right? Anyone who opposes slavery and sexual slavery um, is not a Muslim. They're an apostate, they're a heretic, they're an infidel, and so on. They're accusing the prophet of a grave moral wrong. So, so th th this is, you know, so you have one person, okay, so, right, who's saying that Islam is slavery. All right. And then you have, you know, he's a Muslim, okay, you know. Uh, and then you have another Muslim scholar, me, who says that I don't agree with this, okay, there is no place in the Quran where, where uh, slavery 
is mandated, where it is made obligatory. It is not a matter of faith. It is not a matter of creed. One does not have to believe in slavery. There's all kinds of measures in the Quran to, uh, to, to, to eradicate slavery. There's all kinds of traditions condemning slavery. And there is a long history of Muslim scholars from the dawn of Islam, from the 7th century, all the way to our present time, hundreds and hundreds of them who have condemned slavery, who said that this is not acceptable, this is uh, against the morals and ethics of Islam, um, not acceptable. All right. But you have this woke editor who prefers to take the side of someone who's basically ISIS light, um, who, who's providing, you know, a the, theology, uh, who, who's uh, providing a jurisprudential basis for slavery and concubinage. He might say he thinks it's wrong and so on, but he's saying that, no, the Quran, uh, you know, the permissib- permissibility of slavery and concubinage is undeniable in the Quran. Well, yeah, well, it, it is- doesn't that sound like a, a strange thing for him to be making his jurisprudential argument that slavery and concubinage is uh, permissible in Islam and in Islam's DNA, but then he's saying that personally he thinks slavery is wrong. I mean, isn't he it, almost it, pronouncing it- tekfir on himself? No, it, 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 it absolutely, and uh, I so, so anyhow, uh, absolutely. So they wouldn't publish the review. Now I got really upset and said, you know, and I started to expand upon it and expand upon it, and it snowballed and it turned into a book, which is called Islam and Slavery, published by Academica Press, based in Washington D.C. and London. Okay, so my book is a, a scholarly response. You know, it's a, a work of uh, righteous rage and in indignation. It's a, a, an Islamic emancipation proclamation. All right. And so that's the background of the book and how uh, it came to be. So you were talking about, um, you know, all, all of these distortions and so on. Well, this is an example of distortion of uh, uh, of corruption. Right. Um, yeah. Islam is what Muslims do with Islam. Uh, is there an, uh, an imperialistic Islam? Sure. There were Islamic imperialists. Is there an emancipatory Islam? Is there an egalitarian Islam, a spiritual Islam? Absolutely. So like which type of Islam uh, do you want to – do you believe in? Do you want to, de- uh, you know, uh, disseminate? Do, do you want to promote? Um, so again, you know, this boils down to a choice. Uh, what are your basic fundamental ethical principles? Uh, is this uh, – yeah, anyhow, uh, I will let you intervene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I, I'm curious about the extent to which you found evidence for uh, opposition to slavery as an institution uh, in, in in history. Because my understanding, which is very shallow, unfortunately, I haven't really researched this topic, but based on what little I have read, I had come to the impression that despite the fact that there have been slave revolts uh, throughout history, Spartacus being a famous one, there have been all sorts of examples of 
of, of critiques uh, of this or that sort of aspect of slavery, abuses within slavery. And then with the Quran, we actually have uh, a re- fairly rare case of a, uh, a a work, in this case, a scriptural work that is is clearly um, saying that freeing slaves is meritorious. Uh, but my impression had been that I, there really isn't much of anything until you get to just a few centuries back in in the the Christian West that is systematically and clearly directly. Uh, opposing slavery as an institution. That is that it was basically taken for granted that uh, slavery would, you know, was just a, a normal thing. Just like today we think of people, you know, being paid wages for their work, right? Maybe someday that will be considered barbaric in a form of slavery. But today uh, there's really nobody out there except, I guess, maybe some some uh, utopian Marxians, or so, a very tiny minority of people who actually question that. But even fewer people back in the day were questioning uh, slavery. And so am, am I wrong? Were there people who had mounted these direct uh, arguments in favor of, of just totally abolishing slavery? Um, certainly. Certainly, uh, among the early Christians, there was opposition to slavery, uh, and the early Christians were known to emancipate slaves and, and bring them into the faith. It was only when Christianity became an imperial religion uh, that uh, slavery expanded and so on, um, yeah, especially but, but, I mean, during people, the, the, the colonial direct- period and so on. Yeah, I understand that they were, you know, emancipatory, this and that, but, but in terms of somebody standing up and saying, there shouldn't be any such thing as slavery. We need to get rid of it, like now. Did anyone ever say that? Um. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's an entire section in the book that provides uh, the grounds for the prohibition of slavery uh, from the Quran and from the Hadith. And uh, there's over 200 uh, fatawa or edicts from scholars from the early days of Islam to the present. So, so um, while the Umayyads and the Abbasids and the Ottomans um, – they were all engaged in, in slavery. There were always voices out there saying that this is not acceptable according to the Quran, according to the teachings uh, of the Prophet. And um, at that time, what slavery was a lot of slavery was based on uh, prisoners of war, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so part of the reason I think that that it was widely considered sort of just part of the natural landscape and you could hard to imagine a world without it is, well, you know, what else are you going to do with prisoners of war? Uh, is, is there a link between war and slavery and maybe the abolition of one, uh, would go hand in hand with the abolition of the other? Well, there is definitely a link between, um, war and slavery uh, in some cultures and civilizations, when you would conquer people, you would slaughter everyone, men, women, and children. You would leave n- uh, nothing but scorched earth. Uh, and then so, you know, when you, uh, when you slaughter the combatants and then you, you enslave the women and the children and so on, I mean uh, – it's not as bad as butchering everyone, so perhaps some people argue that it was uh, a lesser evil. But in the Quran, the option of enslaving uh, a prisoner of war 
is not even presented. It says uh, ransom them um, or, or release them. It doesn't mention that uh, you should enslave them. So that's an interesting thing there. And nowhere in the Quran does it say that you can take women captives as sex slaves um, than concubines. Um, nowhere in the Quran is enslavement prescribed for captives of jihad. No verse calls for such enslavement. It doesn't allow it. It's inconceivable that the Quran would call for the enslavement of free men, even if they were captors, while calling for the emancipation of slaves in more than one of its verses. This is from uh, a citation from uh, Rashid uh, Ridha. Um, so neither implicitly nor explicitly does the Quran recognize the right to reduce war prisoners to slavery. The Prophet never did such a thing. This is from a black African jurist by the name of uh, Muhammad Diako. So, um, yes, um, those are the mm-hmm. – in, in, term, in terms of the issue of concubinage, uh, it, it seems to me that you know, the, the family law – in Islam is very much uh, geared towards um, dealing with human nature such as it is and uh, specifically making sure that children have a father to protect them and help support them when they're young and helpless. And, you know, because people have, you know, such a long period of dependency in their infancy that, this uh, is you know, such a crucial issue. And so the requirement that you know, sexual relations be limited to marriage, it seems, and, and that uh, you know, women be limited to one husband, whereas uh, men are allowed up to four wives, is all part of a paradigm that's designed to make sure that all children have uh, a father who has to support them. And with concubinage, I'm a little less clear on how that worked. I assume, though, that the quote-unquote owner of the concubine, uh, as in so many other cultures, a concubine would basically be just sort of a somewhat less privileged wife and that those children would still be the responsibility of the husband-slash-owner. And so maybe you can help enlighten me about sort of how concubinage worked and then how the scriptural sources uh, discourage or prohibit it. All of this relies uh, on an expression, ma malakat aymanakum, which is found uh, in the Quran. All right. Now, this expression, this Arabic expression is unattested before uh, the Quran. We have no evidence of this expression anywhere. Uh, until the appearance of the Quran. Now, it's typically translated as those whom your right hands possess. So quite often people translate it in the present tense. The fact of the matter is that this expression is actually in the past tense, right? Those who are possessed by your right hands, okay? And so on the basis of that, some... Uh, the Quranic commentator said that this only applied uh, to women captives um, from before Islam. And so Islam comes and people come into the religion and everything and so on. Some of these people have 
uh, enslaved women. They have slave girls and they are being intimate with them. And so it refers to those women. It wasn't saying that you could continue conquering people and enslaving their wives and their daughters and taking them as sex slaves. This is a reality on the ground. What do you do? So according to these scholars, it says, you know, be chaste with the exception of your wives and those possessed by your right hand. Um, now, other scholars and commentators said, wait a second here, okay? This is in the plural form, um, therefore it's gender inclusive. And so if it says be chaste, except, you know, with those whom your right hands uh, possess, then if it means that a man can be intimate with his female slaves, it would also mean that a woman can be intimate with her male slaves. And we find this in Quranic exegesis. So if the one is not acceptable, then the other one shouldn't be acceptable either. So this was brought up by classical you know, commentators of the Quran. Does this include women? Do women have the right to have sex with their male slaves? The fact of the matter is does not mean concubine. Arabic is in, as you know, is an extremely rich language. Surya, Jaria, Ama, Mamluka, there are all kinds of words that clearly specify indisputably sex slave, slave girl, all of the, those, none of those words are found in the Quran. We have this expression, ma malakat aymanakum. So some scholars said, wait a second here, what's this ma malakat aymanakum? Some commentators said that it actually stands for wives. Those possessed by the right hand, uh, because the hand represents uh, your oath. Your oath is a contract, so it, it refers to wives. There's some type of legal relationship between you. Other commentators said that it refers to enslaved women who are taken as wives. So that doesn't mean that there's a war and, and women were captured and you could just like, you know, they'll distribute the booty and you can have one, you can take her home and you can have sex with her because, you know, consent, of course, is irrelevant or it's implied. But that you could marry an enslaved woman. And so you would, per, you, you, this woman would be given to you, you would marry her, or you would purchase an enslaved woman to emancipate her, and then you would marry her. So what you have here is actually a wife, but like you said, of a different status. So if you, you're an Arab man and you're married to a free Arab woman of good lineage and so on, good upbringing, she has a certain status, certain rights and obligations. But if you would, uh, you know, purchase an Abyssinian slave uh, woman on the market, you free her and then you marry her, that her rights and obligations would be different as a result of her background and her experiences and her trauma and so on. So for some commentators and some jurists, it refers to that. Enslaved women taken 
as wives. I mean, there's a verse of the Quran that, that, that talks about, uh, you know, married women. And, and some people have interpreted it to mean that you could actually, uh, have sex with married women who are enslaved. So there was a war with, you know, the, the Romans. And some married women were captured, uh, and uh, can the companions of the Prophet just, you know, the, the booty is distributed, can they have sex with these married women? And some people interpret the Quran uh, that way. Um, others say, no, uh, these are women who had embraced Islam. Now, do they have to be formally divorced from their husbands in order to marry a companion of the Prophet, a warrior, or, or whatever? And according to the interpretation of these scholars, well, embracing Islam breaks all of those civil ties. And so those women who are enslaved, who were, cap- who were captured in battle, uh, if they were married, they had, you know, they could be ransomed back, uh, to their communities or they could marry a Muslim. But obviously it was on the, it, it, it wasn't a question of like violating married women. Now this brings us to a, a, another issue that's very, very interesting. Now, among the Romans, they had two forms of marriage. So one was called cum manu, which means in hand, and another one that was called sine manu, which was out of hand. Now, cum manu is is what we in hand uh, is is uh, you know a traditional type of marriage. So in this marriage, uh, the woman marries the free woman, marries the free man, okay, um, and all of her uh, belongings, all of her property pass on to her husband, okay? She does not have the right to divorce, but she does have the right to inherit, and this marriage is permanent. So this was one type of marriage that the Romans had at the time. There was another type of marriage, which curiously was the most popular type of marriage, which was called sine manu, which meant out of hand. In this type of marriage, the woman retained her property rights, so her property was her property, okay? She did not have the right to inherit, and she could terminate the marriage at any time. So those of us who are familiar with Islamic jurisprudence, we start to make some connections here, right? This sounds a lot like what is known as mutta, or temporary marriage. And the other one sounds a lot like nikah, or zawaj, which is the permanent marriage. And so this whole thing about wives and malakatai manukum may actually be reflecting that distinction between um uh, these two different types of marriage. So, again, it's not just cut and dry. Yes, people, there are scholars out there that say that, you know, slavery is halal and nobody has the right to abolish it until the end of time and we even have a duty to revive it. And there are others who say that, well, no, this is against the uh, ethical teachings of the Quran. Uh, which, you know, says, uh, emancipate the slaves, free the slaves, and so on. Uh, we have all of that. There are also some very explicit traditions, 
from the prophet and the imams against slavery. Uh, the Quran is all about standing for justice, not cooperating in sin, not cooperating in, in, in uh, aggression. God loves not transgressors, people given to excess, people who trespass, trespass bounds. Uh, God loves not the corrupt, the wrongdoers, the wasters, uh, the treacherous, uh, people involved in perfidy and crime. Um, the Quran talks about human unity, uh, and diversity and freedom, promoting the good, promoting, uh, you know, uh, prohibiting the wrong. The Quran opposes sexual immorality. It says clearly, coerce not your fatayat, your girls, your women into whoredom. Uh, it condemns bicha. Uh, and so how can one turn around and say, you know, you can just go, uh, attack the neighboring village and take their women by force and so on. Uh, so we have, we, we have uh, choices. Uh, we need to make choices. Uh, what kind of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's up to us to, uh, it's a choice, right? What type of Islam? Yeah. Do not approach unlawful sexual intercourse and so on. I mean, there, there, there's nowhere in the Quran that uh, authorizes tasarri or concubinage or sexual slavery. No such thing at all. The prophet said God will oppose a man who, set, who sells a person. God will forgive every sin except selling a person. There is no nikah without consent. That means there. So you know, uh, John Brown went on and on about you know uh, you know there is no there, there is no need for consent in a sexual relationship in Islamic law. Strange. Uh, Bukhari, Muslim, Tirmidhi, Abi Dawood, Nasai, and Hakim. They all say there is no nikah. The Prophet said without consent. Nikah means marriage. It also means sex. It literally means sex. It means sexual intercourse. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad said in a hadith, verily the worst of your ummah are those who sell human beings. So, so how could we be enslaving people and, and turning women into sex slaves? Another hadith of the Prophet, the worst of people is the one who sells people. So how, how can we say that this is a permissible occupation? In another hadith, he said, set the captives free. Um, and according to, to some traditions, the very last words of the Prophet were, fear God about those whom your right hands possess. What does this mean? According to some scholars, he was saying, do right by these enslaved people, free them or liberate them. Imam Ali said, you know, I mean, you know, John Brown goes on that freedom is not a human right in Islam. And he retracted his statements after. But seriously, Imam Ali was very clear. He said, all people are born free. Do not be slaves for others since God has made you free. Um, so there have always been. Always been. Uh, Abu Ubaid, who was uh, one of the early uh, jurists of Islam, he said that there, there were three options in terms of war. Uh, there was pardon, there was ransom, and death. He specifically stated that slavery was not an option. This is one of the early jurists of Islam. Uh, the Quran says, write out a deed of manumission for your slaves. Now, most of the schools said that this is recommended. It's mustahab. But some of the schools and some of the jurists said it is mandatory. And so if it's mandatory, for everyone to write a deed of manumission for an enslaved person, then slavery cannot be a permanent institution uh, that you know that that cannot be abolished. Um, yeah. So yeah, it says it, it is righteousness to spend of your substance uh, for the ransom of slaves. Uh, it, it doesn't talk about having sex with enslaved women. It says very clearly uh, in in Surah four verse three: "Marry women of your choice." Okay. Um, 
uh, or one your right hands possess. It says marry. That's the verb. It doesn't say, you know, have sex or take her by force or any of that. So uh, it is marriage. You can marry an enslaved person. You're encouraged to do so, but you certainly shouldn't be, uh, you know, violating uh, the woman in question. Right. And, and this gets back to the sort of basis of how we interpret the the scripture. And it, it is widely accepted that the occasion of revelation, uh, the Asbab Nuzul, is crucial for understanding Quranic revelation. So the idea that the context is, is important is very much uh, universally accepted in Islamic scholarship. And then that, that leads to the question of, you know, how do we use that? And it seems to me that the, the approach you're suggesting is that we, we consider the context of all of these uh, revelations and, and, of course, I guess, prophetic hadith as well, and consider that the basically people are, are be you know, at that time were being spoken to in language that they could understand. And that when we interpret it today, you know, just as they were being told to do the very best with what was available to them today, we're being told to do the best with what's available to us, which may be somewhat different in terms of the details. And that uh, slightly more, you know, it gives us a little bit more uh, flexibility. And it seems like people like Brown um, and and others among that that kind of school of thought don't really uh, they they they're not open to that uh, flexibility. That is, they're they're almost as if they think that everything today has to be exactly the same as it was in this particular time and place of revelation. But then, you know, if, if, if that were, if that were true, then how would the Islamic message have been universal, uh, for all times and places and cultures? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if we rely on aql, reason, fitra, natural law, adil, justice, akhlaq, ethics, maqasid, higher objectives, tawheed, you know, maslaha, the greater good, urf, common practice, zaman, wa makan, laharaj, avoiding difficulty, ladarar, avoiding harm, uh, you know, uh, focusing on, on, on the, uh, on not only the text, but the context of the, revel- of the revelation. Uh, if we rely on the hadith and the sunnah and so on, we can come to this conclusion that no uh, we need to put an end to slavery uh, it uh, it was never abolished uh, in Mauritania there are es- anywhere between 400,000 and 800,000 uh, slaves they are black Muslim slaves um, they are hereditary slaves they these are people who have been in I mean they've been practicing slavery uh, there since uh, Islam arrived in the the eighth century or whatever uh, there's you know, some estimates that says as high as one million enslaved people, hereditary black Muslim st- slaves in Mauritania who are owned by Arabs or Berbers or the, 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 the Bidan or Baydan as they call them, the white people. Um, so, you know, this is not theoretical. We're not talking about, you know, uh, it, it, we're talking about reality on the ground. It's not just ISIS that tried to revive it or, or uh, you know, the Groupe Armé Islamique in Algeria or some other, you know, lunatic uh, takfiris. But this is a daily lived reality uh, for million, for, you know, uh, for up to a million people in Mauritania. They are still fighting for freedom and their emancipation. And, and, and 
and, and, and books like those uh, written by Brown and, and people who support him, well, they're legitimizing the slavery of those people and their bondage. And, and it's quite pathetic to me that some of them are, are African-Americans and some of them are Muslim scholars. Well, that's I call that Klansman Islam. Get your Chloron out of my Koran is what I say. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't believe, uh, you know, it's just... I mean, it's just <laughs> Uncle Tom. Yeah, you know, if you're a black Muslim scholar and you're defending slavery, well, you're a Tom. You better, you might as well just crawl back all back on, onto the plantation. How, how about the not so much defenses of slavery, but the the you know the people who sort of relativize it? Uh, we only have about, <laughs> about thirty seconds here, so I'll try to make this really good. So, so the people who just say, you know, there's always been some form of, of slavery. There still is today. It's disguised as wage slavery, uh, and and so we we shouldn't you know think that there has been this absolutely clean break when you know slaves are emancipated and we're in a whole different world. Uh, it, it's it doesn't work like that. How, how do you respond to that in thirty seconds? <laughs> well, no, I mean it, it's never stopped. There in Mauritania and in, in Sudan and other places, uh, old school slavery still persists, and there are modern well, forms new of slavery, slavery yeah. as well. Fact, factories yeah, the, in Bangladesh, factories in, in you know, sure, in, in and, Indonesia. and there are hundreds of thousands of, of, of uh, sex slaves uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Um, do we just you know shrug our shoulders and say this is okay and justify this Islamically? Well, I think not. You know, are we following the Islam of God or are we following the Islam of Satan? Um, absolutely not. Is this something that would be tolerated? No. And by the way, one of the Prophet Muhammad's closest companions and one of the scribes of Revelation was Zunaira or Zunira al-Rumiya, unknown to most Muslims. She was a Greek woman. She was enslaved. She was the collective property of, uh, uh, of, of a tribe in Mecca. All the men could have their way with her. He emancipated her. She became a Muslim, and she became a scribe of the Revelation. Okay, good, good story to end the show with. <laughs> thank yeah, you so much. We separate slaves. We don't enslave. All right. Thank you. John Andrew Morrow. Uh, that's... Uh, the steep uh, path, the uh, we did path, uh, the steep path is freeing the slave. Back next week here on Truth You Have Radio is Kevin Barrett of KevinBarrett.substack.com and TruthJihad.com. See you next time.